Well, when we uh, left off last week, uh, the people of Israel were in the desert. They were in the wilderness. They were eating miraculous food and drinking miraculous water that the Lord had provided for them. Uh, they are on their way to Mount Sinai, where Moses will meet with the Lord on behalf of the people, where God will give them his law, and where the covenant will be confirmed. But before we get there, and Lord willing, uh, we'll be there next week, uh, we see in our passage for this morning two more stories about what happened to the people of Israel on their way. So they've left Egypt where they were slaves. Uh, the Lord delivered them with a mighty hand. They're on their way to Mount Sinai where they will receive the law and meet with the Lord uh, and then enter into the promised land. And so we see in our passage for this morning uh, two more stories before they get to Sinai. So in the second half of chapter 17, if you have a Bible open, uh, you'll see there, uh, starting in verse 8, we see what happened when the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel. Then in chapter 18, we see Moses acting as a judge for the people of Israel, and his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, gives him some helpful advice. Uh, so what I'd like to do this morning is look at those two stories in reverse order, sort of front-loading front load, front the father-in-law angle of things here on Father's Day. Uh, we'll get to see um, Jethro and his advice to Moses, and then we'll consider, go back to chapter 17 and think about the attack of the Amalekites. And, and looking at these two stories in reverse order, hopefully along the way, we are gonna learn something more about the Lord. And we'll also see, I think, some connections with other parts of the Bible's story. So if you have a Bible, again, I think it'd be helpful to have it open, uh, looking at uh, Exodus chapter 18. As the chapter opens, uh, we see Moses' family come out to meet him as the people of Israel encamp near Mount Sinai. So it says there, beginning in verse one, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, uh, Moses' wife, after he'd sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the Lord, my the, the God of my father, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So if you remember back in Exodus chapter two, Moses was in Egypt and he killed a man there and as a result he had to flee. Uh, and we read in Exodus two that he uh, stayed in the land of Midian uh, there he married Zipporah, the daughter of a Midianite priest named Jethro. Uh, and it seems from chapter 18, verses 2 to 3, that at some point Moses had sent his wife and his two sons uh, back to her father. Uh, perhaps that was uh, in the sort of craziness of all the plagues in Egypt. We're not told exactly why, uh, but, but Moses had sent them back. And so now as the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, which was probably a bit east and maybe a little bit south of the land of Midian, uh, we see that his family, having heard that they were there, comes out to meet him. So as they draw near, there in verse 7, we see Moses goes out to meet them. And there's this beautiful moment that's recorded for us beginning in verse 8. It says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship 
that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You can well imagine what this was like for Moses. He knew Jethro well. He had lived with him in Midian. He married his daughter. Uh, Now they are reunited. There's obviously a lot of affection between these men. Moses can't wait to tell Jethro what happened. Jethro is is rejoicing at the good fortune and the the deliverance uh, that has, has happened to Moses. And you can just imagine the story as Moses told him, right? Staffs turning into snakes, plagues, the Passover, the angel of the Lord sparing the people of Israel, the, the flight out of Egypt loaded down with treasure, getting pinned against the Red Sea, the Lord miraculously parting the Red Sea, the people of Israel going through safely, the, the armies of Pharaoh chasing them into the sea, the Lord returning the waters, water from a rock, manna and quail from heaven. That's quite a story that Moses has to tell him of God's deliverance. Right, you see Jethro's reaction there in verse 9. He rejoices in what the Lord has done. In verse 10, he blesses the Lord. And in verse 11, he confesses that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, is greater than any other God. Remember, this man is a priest. He, he's, a, he's a leader in the religion of Midian. But there in verse 12, he offers a burnt offering to the Lord. And it's obviously pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and the other elders of Israel there in verse 12 come and they eat bread before the Lord. And it seems like just in this little interaction here, we see a truth that's woven throughout the the whole story of the Bible. And that is that the, the story of God's salvation would call people from all over the world to recognize that he alone is God. Right, this this little interaction between Moses and Jethro, it reminds me a little bit of what you see in, in the book of Acts. Right? Mike read to us earlier from Acts chapter 11. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives his great speech in Jerusalem. And the result is that the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are so angry that, that they stone Stephen to death and a great persecution breaks out. And we read in Acts chapter 8 that the response is that the people of Israel, or the, I'm sorry, the, the, the Christians in the church uh, flee out of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, as they were going, right, they preached the word. It was like the Lord intentionally sent persecution so that his people would scatter, knowing that as they scattered, they would, they would take the word, the gospel message about Jesus to the people around them. That's why you see in Acts chapter 11 that the Gentiles are, are hearing the good news about salvation in Christ. Right, in the, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, right, which we, we typically sort of translate Jesus' words there as, as go, make disciples of all nations. But in the, in the original Greek in which Matthew was writing, it's actually not an imperative, a command, go. Uh, but rather, it's a, it's a participle, as you are going. 
right? The expectation is that as Christians go about their lives, as God's people are going, whether that's being scattered all over the world through persecution, or whether that's the the U.S. military stationing you in a different place, or your job relocating you, right? As you're going, you have a story to tell. You, You have an amazing message to proclaim of all that God has done, right? Right, even today, we participate in this same dynamic. Just as Moses eagerly told his father-in-law about the Lord's salvation, we have the privilege of telling the people in our lives about what the Lord has done. We have a, a story of God's incredible love in sending his son to die for his people. Frankly, a story that, it's a far greater story than even the one Moses had to tell. Right on this side of the cross, we have the privilege of going all over the world, of, of reaching the nations that have come here to Sterling Park, of telling the people in our neighborhoods and offices about what the Lord Jesus has done for us in hopes that they, like Jethro, will be amazed, that they will see that he is far greater than anything they've been worshiping their whole lives, and that they might bless him and recognize him as their Savior. In fact, friend, if you're not already a follower of Christ, Perhaps today could be your Jethro moment. As we go through this story here in chapter 17 and 18, listen carefully for how it is that God has shown his love for you, particularly in sending his son to die for you and to rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life. Exodus chapter 18 ends with a memorable account of the advice that Jethro gives to Moses regarding the organization of Israel's judicial system. After they catch up, uh, the people of Israel uh, go about their daily lives, and as Jethro is observing, the problem is laid out for us there in verse 13 of chapter 18. It says, the next day, so after this interaction with Jethro, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. There in verse 14, Jethro asks him, you know, what, what he's doing, what's, what his strategy is, right? You're, basically, you're burning yourself out trying to care for all these people from morning till evening. And Moses explains there in verses 15 to 16. It says, Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make, no, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So, so Moses has this role. People come to him, and they, they, they basically want to inquire of him to find out God's will. Uh, some of them come with disputes and ask him to judge between them. Uh, others want to know God's law and his statutes. And so Moses has this sort of massive burden on him. And it seems from the, the language of the, the chapter here that the people are there from morning till evening, that he's, he's not getting through his caseload every day. Uh, so we read there in... Verses 18 to 23 of Jethro's counsel. It says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, 
who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Well, it seems like the most obvious application of this uh, on Father's Day is that you should do what your father-in-law tells you to do. Uh, there in verses 22, uh, some of you are laughing more than others. Uh, there in verses 22 to 27, we see that's exactly what Moses does. He puts Jethro's advice into place. Uh, here, Moses' father-in-law rightly points out that it's just not a, a viable long-term strategy, either for Moses or for the people of Israel who need his help. Right, this idea that Moses will be the one person that everyone comes to. And so he recommends a, a division of labor with, with judges. Uh, there that word has the sense of both a, a legal position and also just a kind of a general leader or ruler. Right, judges being appointed uh, to help with the work. And so for our purposes, it, there are obvious differences between Israel in the desert. Uh, Israel is... Uh, an ethnic group, they are a, a family of sorts, they are a nation, right? So you've got, you've got a, th those people in the desert, right? There's a difference between their situation and ours, right? We're a church, uh, we're not a political entity, we're not a, an ethnic group, we're not in a, in a wilderness right now. Uh, so there's obvious differences between their situation and ours, right? So we can't just take Moses's or Jethro's advice and apply it to our situation somehow. But I, I do think that there are a couple of principles uh, a couple of sort of ideas of wisdom that are laid out here that could be useful for us. And so two, I think, suggest themselves immediately as we look at the, the wisdom of Jethro's advice. Uh, first, I think uh, biblical leadership, or, or we can even just say wise leadership, is shared. So as great as Moses was, he simply was not meant to lead God's people all by himself. And when we get to the New Testament church, it seems that God's intention is that leadership in the local church be shared as well. So Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every church. In fact, you never see elders mentioned alone in the Bible. Uh, they always serve with others. Healthy church leadership is a plurality of elders and of deacons where the work of meeting the congregation's need is, is spread out over a group of people. I think we can see the, the sort of wisdom of that just in, again, chapter 18, where you see that the, the burden is too much for any one person. It's not meant to be uh, laid on one, uh, one individual. The second thing I think that we see here that's helpful for us to notice is that leadership amongst, amongst God's people is moral leadership. Right? If you look there at, at the qualifications uh, that Jethro lays out in verse 21. He says, uh, they need to be able men. Now, in my experience, that's where too many churches stop when it comes to sort of identifying leaders. Uh, if you find someone who is able, uh, whether that's perhaps able to teach or even just sort of highly successful uh, in their career, uh, perhaps highly educated, influential, Right, it's easy to think that person ought to be in leadership in the church. Right, that person's good at getting things done. Right, we'd be lucky to have someone like that who, who leads important things out in the world leading us. 
But that's not all that matters. Uh, Jethro says also that they should be men who fear God, there in verse 21, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. You see, we need leaders who fear the Lord, right? who will pray and serve faithfully and humbly. And so we as a congregation ought to be praying that the Lord would bless us by raising up more and more people who, who meet the biblical qualifications for elders and deacons. And I think as individuals, it's good for us to aspire to that kind of service to God's people. So biblical leadership is, is a, a plurality. It's, it's spread out. Uh, and it's also, uh, it is uh, moral. It is godly leadership. Okay, so with that said... Uh, from chapter 18. Uh, let's turn our attention back to chapter 17, uh, the, the, the other half of our passage, where we see uh, the attack of the Amalekites on the people of Israel. Beginning there in chapter 17, verse 8, we read this. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, nothing that we've seen before particularly uh, causes us to expect this or to anticipate it. It feels like it comes out of the blue, right? Nothing in the narrative up to this point prepares us for this attack. In fact, if you remember back in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, the Lord, as he's delivering or leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, he intentionally doesn't take them to the northeast, which is the most direct route to the land of Canaan, but instead he takes them to the south and to the east because he says he doesn't want to take them through the land of the Philistines because they're not ready for war. Basically, he, the Lord is, is concerned that uh, if they go up into the land of the Philistines, they will be spooked uh, by the, the possibility of conflict and that they'll, they'll want to return to Egypt. But here in chapter 17, war has perhaps inevitably come. Uh, as I mentioned last week, this, the, the cause for this attack could very well be uh, water rights. In the ancient Near East, uh, groups didn't look kindly on people coming through their territory and drinking their water. But whatever the reason, we're not told exactly. Uh, we see in verse 8 that, that Amalek came and fought with Israel. Now, Amalek refers to the descendants of a man by that name. Uh, they're oftentimes referred to in Scripture as the Amalekites. Uh, Amalek was, we're told in the book of Genesis, the, the grandson of Esau. So he's the great-grandson of Isaac. He's the great-great-grandson of Abraham. So there, there is a bit of a family relationship here, right? The Israelites might have even expected that the Amalekites would, would help them on some level. Uh, but instead, there in verse 8, there is an attack. Uh, as a result of this attack, there in verse 16, we see that the Lord commits himself to the ongoing destruction of, of the people of Amalek. So there in verse 16, uh, Moses says, um, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. All right, the Lord sees this attack on his people and he commits himself to fighting against the Amalekites throughout generations. Now, why would he commit to such sort of unceasing war against one group of people? We're not really told much about the fight or the battle here in Genesis or Exodus 17, but we do read more about it in the book of Deuteronomy. So there, in Deuteronomy, in the midst of a bunch of sort of seemingly disconnected instructions that the Lord is giving to Israel, he tells them not to forget what Amalek did here in chapter 17 of Exodus. 
So we read in Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 17. This is the Lord commanding Israel. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies, all, all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So you see there in Deuteronomy 25, something of the nature of this attack against Israel. The Amalekites see the people of Israel in the wilderness, and Deuteronomy 25 tells us that they were faint, they were weary, they were vulnerable. And their attack was against the stragglers, right? The, the tail of, the, of the, the train, so to speak, right? Those who were lagging behind, right? You're probably talking about the, those who are, who are handicapped, those who are ill, maybe pregnant women, children, the elderly, right? This is a, this is a cruel and vicious attack. And so you see there in Deuteronomy 25, the Lord's response. He tells the people of Israel, look, once you get settled in the land, once you get to the place I'm going to give you, remember, don't forget to pay Amalek back for what they did. In fact, they were supposed to wipe them off the face of the earth to utterly blot out their memory, right? You see the irony. Don't forget, no one should remember them. Now, this is connected back to what we saw in Genesis chapter 12. When the Lord first called a man named Abram to follow him, he made Abram this promise in Genesis 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. So we see here the Lord is quite serious about that commitment. His salvation involves not just blessing his people, not just spreading his blessing through his people, but also judgment on the enemies of his people. Of course, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, the people of Amalek would learn that lesson as well. Uh, this wiping out of the, Amal of the Amalekites that begins here in Exodus 17, as we'll see in a minute, is a process that really takes us through most of the Old Testament. So in Numbers, uh, chapters 13 and 14, we see the, the people of Israel are afraid to go into the promised land because the Amalekites were there. In 1 Samuel 15, the Lord tells Saul, who is the king of Israel at the time, he says this in 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So we're talking about Exodus 17. So the Lord tells Saul, now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Uh, Saul went about that task, but didn't finish it off, didn't complete it. He didn't take the Lord's command seriously. He didn't think God really meant what he said. In 1 Samuel 30, the Amalekites come back, those, that sort of remnant that was remaining, and they, they raid some of Israel or Israel's land. They carry people off into captivity. And so King David comes and he destroys them. But he doesn't finish off the job. We read there that 400 Amalekite men were able to flee on camels before David could put them to the sword. 
And so we read in 1 Chronicles 4 that during the days of King Hezekiah, several centuries later, there were still Amalekites hiding out for the people of Israel. Uh, The people of Judah were meant to devote them to destruction. So it's interesting, when you get to the Old Testament book of Esther, so now we're talking about roughly a thousand years after the events of Exodus 17. We're not surprised when we're reading the book of Esther and we're introduced to the bad guy, a man named Haman, right, a guy who wants to wipe out all the Jews. We're not surprised when we're told that he's an Agagite, right? He's a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag, right? The Amalekites are sort of the archetype in the Bible of people who want to harm uh, God's people. So in the book of Esther, we see Haman and his family are, are wiped out. And it seems that that's the last sort of Amalekite we meet in scripture. It seems that the, the process of wiping out the memory of them uh, has been completed. So in our passage here, uh, we see how the Lord delivers them from this infamous attack. Uh, reading there in verses 9 and 10. It says, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men. And go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. This is the first mention we have of Joshua in the narrative. He's eventually going to be Moses' successor as Israel's leader. He would prove to be a courageous and effective military leader for God's people. Here he is appointed to go after uh, Amalek with a group of Israelites. Moses tells him that he's going up on the hill uh, overlooking the battle and he takes with him Aaron and Hur. As we'll see in a moment, those two men are gonna play an important role. And there may be some significance in their identities. So some commentators have noticed that Moses sort of represents prophetic ministry amongst the people of Israel. He's in the, called a prophet in the book of Leviticus. Aaron is going to serve the people of Israel as a priest. And this other man, Hur, while he's not a king, he is from the tribe of Judah. He is from the kingly line. And he seems to, when we see him in the text, he seems to be exercising some kind of political authority as the narrative goes on. And so some people have noticed that this scene of a, of a prophet and a priest and, and someone who's kind of like a king, right, seems to, to perhaps point forward to the Lord's intention to deliver his people through uh, the work of a, a prophet, priest, and king, right? These three offices that the Lord Jesus will eventually, centuries later, unite in one person. It is clear that the Lord is going to use these men to deliver Israel. Uh, Beginning there in verse 10, uh, we see the battle unfolds in an unusual way. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So Moses is watching the battle with uh, his hands in the air, holding up the staff of the Lord. 
right? The staff with which he had struck the Nile, the staff that he had held up in order to part the sea, the staff with which he had struck the rock in the wilderness in our passage for last week. And when Moses' hands containing this staff are up in the air, the Israelites win the battle. But as he becomes weary and his arms droop, the Amalekites begin to win. So once they figure out this dynamic, Aaron and Hur pull up a rock so Moses can sit down. They hold up his arms, and, and the victory is ultimately accomplished. That's a strange way for a battle to unfold. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what it means that the battle was in some way dependent on Moses keeping his arms up in the air. But perhaps we can observe two things. One of these things will be very brief. One of them will be kind of long. But I think first, I think it's meant to emphasize that the, the people of Israel are dependent on the Lord. So we've seen throughout the book of Exodus, particularly in chapter 15 in the Song of Moses, that the Lord's salvation is pictured as coming through his, his mighty hand or even his outstretched arm. And so here in chapter 17, it's clear that it's not Moses who is saving them from the Amalekites. Right? He can't even keep his hands in the air long enough for them to win. Right? He needs other people around him. Uh, perhaps this is a, an illustration of the, the point that Jethro would make later. Right? Moses, you're not sufficient in and of yourself. But the point, I think, is made powerfully. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Israel must look to him for salvation. They're not going to find what they need ultimately in Moses or in their own military might or in their clever strategies or good plans. Their only hope is in the staff of the Lord, representing his power to save, representing his judgment against their enemies. Their only hope is that the, the Lord will be with them. And that brings us to the second thing for us to notice, and this will be, I think, where we finish up this morning and that is that this event, I think, is meant to teach the people of Israel something important about their relationship to the Lord. Look there in verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, so there in verse 14, the Lord commands Moses to write down a memorial, particularly uh, his commitment to wipe out Amalek. He wants to make sure Joshua knows it, right? So this idea is meant to be passed down to the next generation of leadership. And Moses responds there in verse 15 by building an altar to the Lord, and he calls it, the Lord is my banner. And I think in order to understand what's going on here, we need to look at a few other passages in the Bible, three in particular. So, so hang in with me for a second. So we're, we're kind of past the halfway point. I know attention starts to flag. We're about to get into the weeds a little bit. Uh, this isn't very complicated, but I think it does require a little bit of attention to, to hold it all together. Uh, what I want to do is trace this thread, this idea that the Lord is my banner. I want to trace this thread through the Bible's story. And even if you don't, maybe don't know some of the events we're going to be talking about, uh, you can check them out for yourself later. And maybe it's helpful. Think of yourself as if you're, you're lost in a cave, right? One of those caves that I've never actually seen in my experience, but they're all over in movies and, and novels, 
right? Twisting, confusing, dark caves, the, the kind of place you can't possibly find your way out of. But, but someone has, has left behind one of those sort of guide ropes, right? A thread, if you will. And if you take that rope in your hand and you keep following it, you'll eventually be able to escape above ground, right? Because that, that rope is anchored in safety, right? It's tied to the place where you want to be. And so you're in this cave and you're going to follow this guideline to see where it leads. And, and that's a little bit like what I want to do here. I want to take this, this thread that we see here in Exodus chapter 17 and I want to follow it through the centuries, like keeping our hand on it and just see where it leads us. So... Uh, our, our next step after the book of Exodus is the book of Numbers. So two, booklet, two books later, the people of Israel are on the other side of Sinai, but they're still in the desert. They're looking to go into the land that the Lord had promised to them. And in Numbers chapter 20, just like we saw last week in Exodus 17, uh, the people of Israel run out of water and they grumble. And in Numbers 20, just like we saw last week in Exodus 17, the Lord provided water from the rock that Moses struck. And so you have these two parallel events in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. A lack of water, grumbling, and miraculous provision. Right? You can see how those, those two events are connected thematically. Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. If you're just reading through the Old Testament, you get to Numbers 20, you're like, huh, I, I've heard this before. Okay, so what happens right after that event in Exodus 17? Well, as we just saw, uh, they fight with the Amalekites. The Lord delivers them. And Moses declares, the Lord is my banner. Okay, so lack of water, grumbling, provision, and then the Lord is my banner. Well, what happens right after that same event that happens in Numbers 20? Well, in Numbers 21, the people begin to grumble and complain again. We read there that as a result, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. But the Lord's plan there in Numbers 21 isn't to destroy them from their, for their sin, but rather to save them from the consequences of it. So we read there in Numbers 21, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, so you have this odd event, right? Numbers 20, grumbling, lack of water, provision, right? And then you have these fiery serpents of, of judgment. But God tells Moses, make a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, and, and hold it up over the people. The Lord says, anyone who looks at the snake will live. Okay, so how is that connected to Exodus 17? Well, the Hebrew word that's translated in the book of Numbers as pole is the exact same Hebrew word that's used here in Exodus 17 that's translated as banner. Right? Moses in, Exodus, in Numbers 21 puts this bronze snake up on a pole or, or a banner, and Israel is saved. Okay, so that might be interesting, but is it significant? I think so. If you keep going to another passage, centuries later, the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, the deliverer that he was going to send. And in Isaiah 11, right, it's a passage we oftentimes read at, at Christmas time, right, the picture is that this coming Savior will represent a revival of the, the line of King David, 
right? It's going to be Jesse's line, right? Jesse is, is David's ancestor, right? Jesse's line has been cut down to a stump, but off of it, one, one day, Isaiah sees a mighty branch will grow. This promised redeemer is called in Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse, right? To show his connection to David's royal line. And so we read this in Isaiah 11, starting in verse 10. In that day, so in this coming day of salvation, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, so what on earth does that have to do with Exodus 17 and Numbers 21? Stop me if you've heard this before. But the word translated there as signal is the same Hebrew word that's used in Numbers 21 for pole and in Exodus 17 for banner. Right? Again, the, the idea is that the Lord's salvation comes here to all the nations and to God's scattered peoples throughout the world by the raising up of a, of a signal or a banner or a pole. Right? The people of the nations are saved by, by looking to that banner, looking to that signal, looking to that pole. It's, it's through looking that they are restored and find rest. And so that's what I think we need to see. That this thread that, that emerges out of Exodus 17 and takes us through the Old Testament, right? The Lord saves, saves the people with a staff raised up high over them, right? When the staff comes down, uh, the people begin to lose. When the staff is held up, the people have victory, right? Moses is trying to capture this image uh, by saying, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my, my lifted up thing, the idea is that God's deliverance is, is pictured as something lifted up over the people, something that they can see, something that they can identify with God's salvation. Right, then this thread right, runs us through the book of Numbers where the bronze serpent on the pole or on the banner is the Lord's remedy for judgment against the people's sin. And then in Isaiah, this coming redeemer is described as a, a signal, a banner that all the nations uh, can go to to find salvation. And so it seems like we're clearly being led in that direction. But maybe we don't quite see the exit to the cave yet. We can't quite see daylight. But it's obvious we're heading somewhere. Well, then centuries after Isaiah's prophecy, we see the coming of the Lord Jesus, God's son in human flesh, the one who came in King David's line to save God's people from their sin. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And listen to how he explains his purpose, his ministry, his salvation to this man. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so friends, now we've walked out of the cave and we see what the string has been tied to all along. We see what we've been heading to throughout the whole of the Old Testament. We see now the shadow giving way to reality. We see the promise giving way to fulfillment. Moses holds up a staff 
and the Lord is like a banner over his people. They're saved. Moses holds up a bronze serpent on, on a pole or on a banner, and God's people are saved. Isaiah sees the Lord's deliverer as a signal or banner to the nations. And now in John chapter 3, we find out what all of this means, that the Lord Jesus, God's own son, will be lifted up on a cross. And there he will take on himself our judgment, the consequences of our rebellion against God. There on the cross, he suffered in our place, taking our punishment, and he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. There on the cross, he becomes God's salvation for us. He's lifted up like the bronze serpent. He's lifted up like a banner. He's lifted up like a signal so that everyone who looks to him in faith might find God's salvation. Friends, Moses is lifting his arms up in Exodus 17 as a picture of the way that God will ultimately save his people. And if you haven't experienced that salvation, then you need to know that it's available to you today. All you must do is look to the Lord Jesus in faith. If you have questions about that, I'd encourage you to talk to the person who brought you this morning or come talk to me or anyone that you've seen up here during the service. We would be delighted to tell you more about how you can find salvation and deliverance through the Lord Jesus. And for those of us who are already Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus, there is good news for us. And that, that is this God that we read about all through the Old Testament, that the Lord Jesus shows us most clearly. This God who is a banner of salvation lifted up for his people. This God, Christian, is yours. He is with you. And he is for you. Every bit as much as he was with Israel when they fought against their enemies. And so in suffering, in failure, in conflict, in anxiety, in persecution, in great sadness, you're not alone. You are not without hope. You're not without deliverance. But you can look to him. I think that brings us naturally to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because it's here at the table that we have an opportunity to yet again look to Christ in faith. To see in the bread and the cup his broken body and his shed blood. And to celebrate all that the Lord is. And that he's a banner to his people. And so let's pray and let's come to the table together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your great love and in your amazing provision of your son for us. We thank you, Lord, that despite our sin, uh, you have not abandoned us, but in your great love, you sent the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, we delight in you. We rejoice uh, that you were willing to be lifted up in order to draw the nations to yourself. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us uh, hearts uh, that love the Lord Jesus. We pray, Spirit, that you would help us to look to him in faith. And we pray that you would help us and keep us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.